Welcome to the All for Literacy podcast, hosted by Dr. Liz Brooke, welcoming established and emerging voices in literacy education and the science of reading. Explore with us the connections between literacy research, educators' knowledge and skills, and the implementation into classroom instruction. I also think as students get older, we need to really think a lot more about how it is we refine and define what all classroom teachers do to raise the literacy level. You just heard Dr. Sharon Vaughn, the Manuel J. Justice Endowed Chair in Education and Executive Director of the Meadows Center for Preventing Educational Risk at the University of Texas at Austin. Today, Dr. Sharon Vaughn and Dr. Jean Wanzek join Dr. Liz Brooke to discuss educators' challenges in adolescent literacy and what effective intervention could look like. Here's your host, Liz Brooke. Thanks everyone for joining us today as we kickstart a new effort, new season for All for Literacy podcast. In 2024, we are addressing an issue that our guests repeatedly raised throughout 2023, which is the issue of connecting new and established research with educators applying those ideas daily in our schools. And as we look forward, it is essential that information and conversations flow both ways from research to the classroom and that classroom experience back to the researchers. So today I am incredibly honored to be joined by two of those influential researchers, Dr. Sharon Vaughn and Dr. Jeannie Wanzik. I'll start by introducing them. Dr. Sharon Vaughn is the Manuel J. Eustis Endowed Chair in Education and the Executive Director of the Meadows Center for Preventing Educational Risk at the University of Texas at Austin. She's currently the principal investigator or co-PI investigator on several Institute for Education Sciences, National Institute for Child Health and Human Development, and U.S. Department of Ed research grants investigating effective interventions for students with reading difficulties and students who are English language learners. And Dr. Jeannie Wanzik is a professor in Curry Ingram Endowed Chair in the Department of Special Education at Peabody College of Vanderbilt University. Her research focuses on effective reading instruction and intervention for students with reading difficulties and disabilities. And prior to receiving her doctorate, Dr. Wanzik worked as a special educator and an elementary school teacher. So Sharon and Jeannie, welcome to the All for Literacy podcast. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Thank you. We're glad to be here. I can't even begin to talk about the contributions you have all made to the science of reading. I know, Jeannie, you have over 100 publications in the areas of early reading and learning disabilities, adolescent reading, intervention, and Sharon author of more than 35 books, 250 peer-reviewed research, 65 chapters that address issues related to research and practice with learning problems. So again, just so excited to have you and learn from you both today. So I like to start these podcasts by just asking what was your journey Maybe, Jeannie, I'll start with you because I ended your introduction that you started as a special educator and elementary teacher. 
So what was that journey from classroom teacher to now researcher? Yeah, absolutely. When I started as a teacher, I never really thought that I would go further at all, actually, in in graduate school. I was planning to teach in the classroom my entire career. And I got really interested in reading within the first couple of years of teaching special education. I was working with second and third graders largely in the position I had. And some of the students would really take off in their reading progress quite quickly. And I knew that was not exactly just because I was this amazing teacher. Wow, look at them. They're making progress. But rather that some of them had been identified with a learning disability just due to poor instruction. And so they were taking off by receiving better instruction. But I became interested both in how that could happen and also what else I needed to know about reading instruction. I started then as a second grade teacher for several years, having a lot of students with reading difficulties purposely put into my class. I was trying to get on the preventative side of that. But then that made me realize that even though I knew some good things about good instruction, I wanted to know more. And at first I thought there was an answer oh, I'll just find out how you teach reading better. And there's nothing more we need to learn. I just don't know it. And obviously that journey led to realizing that there are a lot of things we know and even more so now, but that there are things that we still need to learn. And that's when I became interested in at least the higher ed part of that and going into teaching teachers and helping more kids learn to read and not be identified with a disability if they don't have one. And then our special ed services, of course, can be better directed for the students who really do have reading disabilities. So that's kind of how I ended up going to graduate school, which I was never going to do. So, (laughs) well, and you actually, because you did, (laughs) I was going to say you ended up as a student of Sharon's, correct? Yeah, I did. Yes. And so um, now we've reversed roles. Well, tell us a little bit about that, Sharon. I mean, it, amazing influence you've had on the science of reading and on this field. What was your journey to where you are and how you first got into this pathway? Yeah, it's a little bit of a winding road. I actually am a first-generation college graduate. And so in my generation, there were basically two options for women who were (laughs) first-generation college-bound. And I think everybody probably knows what those are. And I thought that I would be interested in teaching, but I knew I didn't want to just focus on students who were typical learners. And I think where that could have come from is that I grew up in the city of St. Louis in a house across the street from what at that time was an institution for individuals that were unable to be taken care of at home. And so they represented a big range, people that had psychosis, people that were significantly cognitively impaired, people that had severe physical disabilities, and they had a school for children that also were students with disabilities. And most of them lived there because they were unable to be taken care of at home. But that sort of became my playground because it was across the street and they had a lot of property, kind of the way you would visualize institutions, you know, in the olden days with these grounds 
And that was like the biggest park in the area. So I was fascinated actually from an early age by individuals who had challenges. And I wanted to know more about that. So that seemed like the most obvious pathway for me when I did my undergraduate work at the University of Missouri. And I got interested in individuals with severe emotional disturbance and ended up working in an institution, a self-contained sort of, it was more than a self-contained school. They actually lived there in Tucson. And I learned a lot about feedback and explicit instruction and clarity and behavioral principles. And then I noticed that a common feature of all of the students was that they either could not read or inadequately read. So then I went back and did a master's degree and got very interested in learning disabilities and reading disabilities. And then I got a master's degree in reading. So I got a master's degree both in learning disabilities and reading, which at the time were very separate. And I thought I was finished like Jeannie. That's all the education I need. I now know everything. And I continued teaching and I realized I knew something, but I was pretty motivated to try to also improve what it is that other teachers knew about these topics. And I thought I could do something like teacher education, teacher preparation. So I did go back and do a PhD in special education and in child development at the University of Arizona. And I wasn't really sure what I was going to do with this PhD. If you asked me, I would have given you a really bad answer, which is why today when doctoral students give me really bad answers to what they want to do after they finish their PhD, I don't pay any attention because I think you don't really know until after your like second, third or fourth year in the program. But I kind of thought, well, maybe I'll start my own school. I mean, that's, I know, a really crazy idea. Or I wasn't sure, but I got interested in research. And then I ended up making that a more prominent part of my career. It's really true what you're saying, Sharon. I, similarly, when I started my doctorate, I wanted to find out more about reading. I wanted to get into the research, but I thought that what I wanted to do, you know, and I, it wasn't very well formed even then, but teach teachers, maybe a faculty position, maybe a different type of position, curriculum director, something where I could use that knowledge to help teachers and kids and myself. And it was really because of Sharon's work that she was doing intervention research and reading. I was involved in those projects right from the beginning. And I realized I want this knowledge and I want to help more kids and teachers, but I still need to see those kids. And then I also was realizing how much more there is to learn about reading. And that's where I became really interested in the research aspect. But that was not at all on my radar when I first entered the program. I'm going to tell the audience a secret about Jeannie Wanzek, which is that <laughs> even today, if she doesn't get to spend enough time working with students and actually teaching or supporting tutors who are teaching, she isn't happy. So that scene is very strong and is manifested today. Absolutely. That's such a, a powerful theme for the whole season this year for All for Literacy is that connection between researchers and classroom practice and vice versa, that double bi-directional relationship. And I think that is so important that researchers are spending time in the classrooms and then 
classroom teachers are giving feedback to researchers so that we keep that relationship happy. But I love that you always want to continue to be connected with actual students and be in the classrooms. I was just going to say I had a similar story. And I think a lot of folks maybe don't set out thinking, okay, I'm going to go get my doctorate or PhD. But it was when I went down to work at FCRR with Joe Torgerson, and he started to talk to me about it. And I was like, oh, I hadn't considered that. I had gotten my master's in speech and language and thought again, okay, that's it. But anyway, so that's interesting. And I just want to, before we move on to some of the stories about your current research, I guess you said, Sharon, now the roles are reversed and <laughs> talk talking about learning from Jeannie and just, can you talk about the relationship of mentor and mentee and how you guys have done so much great work over the years and just how that relationship has been sustained well beyond Jeannie as your student? Yeah, I, I appreciate that question. And it's not an easy one to describe because admiration and appreciation for people evolves over time. And it certainly has to the point where there are just so many examples of what she knows and how she thinks that improve what I know and what I think. And I know that there is a really important part of transitioning from mentor to collaborator. And it occurred actually pretty quickly and seamlessly. And I feel pretty comfortable saying without any conversation. So I really don't know when, but it was pretty fast, as you could imagine, Liz, knowing Jeannie, because she's so capable and so thoughtful. And you don't really think of her as someone who is acquiring information from you. You think of her always as someone who's exchanging it. And I remember so many times when she would ask me a question that I sort of half knew the answer to and probably gave her a half answer. And Jeannie would not go away. I mean, everyone else, I would give them these half-baked answers and then they would be somewhat satisfied. She would come back and ask me. So I would actually have to learn something about what I was responding in more detail so that both of us could co-develop knowledge around that question. I can come up with one very specifically that I remember, and she probably remembers it too, but it has to do with calculating effect sizes and not considering pretest differences. Uh, <laughs> that question may have come to me like three times. I got a better answer and I think she was satisfied, but I learned at the same time. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, Jeannie, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I appreciate that. And I hope that there's even an inkling of something that Sharon could have learned from me. I do think we collaborate well together, but it's still the case that speaking of working with kids, we have an after school reading project going on right now. And I was just in one of those sites a couple of days ago. And every time that I am working with kids, especially with a teacher who's also working with kids. So that was the case here where we were kind of working together and helping out. Sharon always pops into my mind because when she walks into a room with kids, it is energetic. It is a light. I mean, the kids just really respond to her. Teachers respond to her as well. And 
I don't know that I have that same energy. And I always think to myself, okay, what would Sharon do? What should I be doing right now that would make this even better than what I'm currently doing? But I think we also have worked well together over the years, as many collaborations do when you have different puzzle pieces. And I do tend to focus a little bit on details and that might frustrate Sharon at some points. <laughs> and she is very big picture, more so than I could ever be. And that really helps me as well. So no, that's a, a great point is that building on each other's strengths, right? And finding that whole picture from big picture all the way down to details. So I love to hear that relationship. And I think for folks out there thinking about pursuing a graduate degree, right? To to your point, Sharon, you don't necessarily need to know what you're going to do with it, or it may change based on your major professor's research or whatnot. And then you build these relationships and they do sustain. As you alluded to, Sharon, I did have the opportunity and the privilege to work with Jeannie. We overlapped when we I was at FCRR. So I do know what an incredible hard worker and just learned so much when I had that time with her as well. So and today's topic, I would love to dive in. I mean, with the two of you, we could talk about any topic possible, which I do want to hear about the areas of your research that you want to highlight. I think that one question I wanted to start with was with all of the focus right now on the science of reading and legislation being passed, most of it is focusing on the elementary ages and not as much attention is being paid to adolescent literacy. I know both of you have studied not only elementary, but also a great deal in the upper grades as well. And so one of the things I think that gets often referred to is NAEP or the nation's report card, which does actually address fourth and eighth and 12th grade literacy proficiency. We know that those numbers have been pretty static around 32, 33% reading proficiently. So as we think about adolescent literacy and think about those results, can you talk about how you might interpret for both educators and parents, takeaways from those NAEP results and or what you're seeing from your research as it relates to those upper grades, fourth and above? Well, I'll start. I do, through the various aspects of research and implementation, that certainly things grow, obviously, from elementary to higher. So I think as we're seeing more attention paid to science of reading. It's not surprising that is growing from elementary and up. And we know the most about some areas of reading for kids who are learning to read. And so those early elementary grades. So that that certainly makes sense. And that foundation is incredibly important as we think about even kids with reading disabilities in the older grades, because what they receive early on, both in their core instruction, as well as any interventions that they receive in their special education, is that in and of itself is going to make a huge difference in what their needs are in sixth, seventh, eighth, or even high school. But there are for sure students who still need those interventions, even with 
very good instruction early on. Students who have reading disabilities are going to need those interventions. And of course, we see students with reading difficulties in the upper grades who either didn't have that good foundation or started to struggle a little bit later on with the more complex types of text. We do know that we can intervene and we can provide good instruction both in those still core classroom classrooms, sorry, in middle school, as well as in supplemental interventions that can make a difference in these kids' reading and also their lives as a result. And Sharon particularly has done some incredible work showing that it may take more time. It may take more intensive interventions. It may take alignment with core classroom instruction, also embedding some of these practices. But we see really great progress. And I'll let Sharon talk a little bit more about that in those areas. Yeah, that would be, sorry, just one of the questions we often get, is it too late, right, for these students? And so maybe Sharon can speak to whether it's the intensity or the type of intervention, but love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, thank you. So there's a couple of thoughts I have. Um, One is that Jeannie and myself and many others, you as well, Liz, were sort of at the forefront of wanting to be sure we defined and refined interventions in a way that were responsive to the needs of students who had not acquired proficiency by second or third grade. And we really pushed in on these interventions. And we've learned a great deal. We've learned a great deal about the fact that you need multiple components we sort of talk a lot about the science of reading being the big five, phonemic awareness, phonics, fluency, vocabulary, and comprehension. But we've also learned, hey, what about spelling and writing? Maybe we got a big seven here. And so we've really sort of broadened our view on what these interventions need to look like, how long they need to last. And Jeannie and myself, as well as others, have also started thinking about Are there other components that need to be integrated within these interventions to improve their power? So as students get older, are there issues related to anxiety that we might sort of have some anxiety management woven in? Jeannie's really thought a lot about mindset and whether that might be something we need to think about as we design interventions. We also have issues related to attention, memory, self-regulation, all of these as sort of the executive functioning and how we might need to be more responsive, not so much teaching them. Like, I don't want the audience to hear memory training or I don't want the audience to hear self-regulation training and isolation. I want the audience to hear how do we think about this, these self-regulation practices in ways that will allow us to build interventions by weaving what we know about them into the way in which we design intervention. So I think that's really particularly important as students get older. I also think as students get older, we need to really think a lot more about how it is we refine and define what all classroom teachers do to raise the literacy level. So rather than thinking, oh my gosh, what does the 40 or 50 minute intervention each day look like? In addition, not instead of, what does every social studies, science, English language arts, mathematics teacher need to do every day so that literacy enhancements are built in to these, this content learning? 
And I think we know some things about that and we can do a lot better with that. But I think as long as we sort of lean solely into intervention solving the problem and not enough into the combination of classroom, if you will, uh, content area classroom practices plus intervention solving the problem, I think we are going to make an adequate progress. And that is such an important piece that I don't think I've heard expressed so completely like that. We think about the intensity that's needed for these students. And you're right, we often hear we don't have enough time in our schedule, right, for the intense reading block that we need. But if we reframe the question to how can we build in the scaffolding and the explicitness to every single class throughout the day. So can we stay on this thread a little bit? Because as we think about designing professional learning for content area teachers in the science of reading, we might hear, I'm not a reading teacher, right? I'm an eighth grade science teacher. But is it things like understanding the power of morphemes, Greek and Latin morphemes as they're working in their classrooms? Is it about explicitness? Can you talk a little bit about some of the things that we do know would be beneficial to weave throughout the whole class schedule and not just that reading block? Yeah, let me say a little bit too that I think in the work that we've done with middle school and high school classroom teachers, that I am surprised how very simple and small things make a difference, not only, and I'll I'll name some of them, but make a difference not only for the students with reading difficulties or reading disabilities or disabilities in general. We've looked at some of that as well in their progress in that class, but also all the other students as well. And in fact, some of the highest students make some of the highest progress over classrooms that are not doing some of these things. So what are some of those small things like vocabulary instruction for, and I'm not talking about like an entire class period of vocabulary instruction, like a small five or 10 minutes on keywords that are gonna come up throughout different units in your course because they're very content related. Many teachers already do that, but small differences between just introducing those words and some definitions and actually spending an extra few minutes on let's have a quick discussion to make sure you understand what that word is. Let's bring it back up when we read text about it. Doing some of the text reading during class so that there's support and understanding how to monitor your reading in that discipline, in that content area. Engaging students so that their practice is not just the homework that they get at night after having been in the class, but let's talk about this, which allows you not only to continue teaching your content, but get some feedback on how they're understanding it. And it's also practice for the students. And each of these things does not have to happen every single day, but each of these things happening a few minutes on different days throughout every unit has been very impactful for the entire class, which I have actually been somewhat surprised by. I don't know, Sharon, what your thoughts are towards that. Yeah. And I think those are really, I think, the base of what has to be done. So fundamental and high impact, low stress or low effort. 
are relatively low. But I also think just actually telling students what you want them to know. So in this particular unit or today, there are three things that I really want you to think about as we, the sort of, if you will, big ideas, advanced organizers, and actually making sure that these constructs, because I know vocabulary is really important, and I know what genie means is not just the vocabulary words, but the constructs. And so within these larger constructs in the content area, so for example, cells in science, I thought of that because you teach science, cells come with it a lot of other words like mitosis and various things that go with cells. And so if you think of this as a construct with a cluster of words that relate to it, then you can really not just teach vocabulary as sort of one-off, but teach this complex web of words that also builds background knowledge. Thinking about those semantic relationships, and I think, Jeannie, when not just sharing the vocab word list and definition list, right, but engaging with it and doing some of that in the classroom versus sending it home with the students, setting the goal and objective, right, even as adults, thinking about when we attend a meeting, we want to know what's the purpose of the meeting, right? What's the goal of the meeting? Similarly, like you said, Sharon, if the students know, okay, I'm supposed to be listening for these three things, or by the end of this lesson, hopefully I will know these three things And in terms of that big picture. Again, thinking about how we think about adolescent literacy. And I know, Jeannie, you said earlier, it's really important, this focus on the foundational years, right? Because we want to set that foundation. We want students to have evidence-based instruction. And then we know there may be some opportunities for growth for these students. Something that I often say, and I'm curious, I don't want to mislead people But thinking about the science of reading, right, first of all, that word gets thrown around a lot. (laughs) And, And I try to keep bringing people back to it's the evidence, right? And there is this massive library of evidence. And so when I think about the science related to adolescence, I often say it's different in the science for elementary students. And what I mean by that is thinking about studies that have included, like many of yours have, middle school and high school students, you might find a different emphasis, right, to the Fab Five or the Fab Seven, and how you might incorporate those for students who have already been in this kind of process of learning to read. Do you think that's a fair statement? And do you think it's helpful for people, especially those teachers in the upper grades, to be, if they are going to incorporate some things into their content area teachers, can we think about what research says might be most impactful for that age range of students or that kind of learning profile? Yeah. Let me also, back to the science of reading, say I agree with you, Liz. It's the evidence base and it's the research base, but it's also the current evidence base and the current research base. And there are things that we are still learning. We will learn. We should expect as educators and teachers that there will be new information for us 
And yes, it's not static or finished. Yeah. <laughs> so sometimes, and there are certainly areas, you've named some of them in, in the early elementary grades, particularly in teaching kids how to read print and change it into language, that we have more, so much in decades and decades of consistent research on. But nevertheless, we still may learn something new in that area. And there are certainly areas of fluency and reading comprehension that I can guarantee you we're going to learn more information about. And so I, I absolutely love that we're talking about the science of reading, that we're talking about implementing that evidence. But I want to make sure that everybody continues to expect that we're going to learn more. And it doesn't mean that what you did before was wrong. We have learned some additional things and let's put that into our instruction. But I do think that, yes, there, Sharon talked about some of these earlier, that there are some areas that you have to think about with older adolescent readers that maybe don't come into play with reading. They are all interconnected, though. Some of the language reading comprehension areas that might be more of an emphasis or that we need to think about with older readers are still connected to the younger grades, too. And it's important that we as teachers and educators can see that full picture. So even if I am the first grade teacher or the first grade reading interventionist and I'm working the problem at hand or the intervention at hand is helping these students decode this text, keeping their language, their vocabulary and their comprehension of language at a high level through listening comprehension or oral vocabulary of those types of things is equally important because down the road, we want that still at a high level. You don't wait till seventh grade to say, oh, okay, they have low language. Let's start to fixing this. And maybe that happened because they couldn't read the more complex text until later in their life. But we have avenues to keep those areas at high levels when students are younger as well. And so I think all educators need to have that full picture. It, it all flows together, even though, yes, interventions may have different components. And some of them that Sharon talked about are other areas, psychosocial areas that may come into play when you've struggled with something for so many years or had to work at such an intensive levels for so many years. You may have other areas like mindset or anxiety or those kinds of things that become more emphasized parts of interventions as well. But I'm curious what you would also say, Sharon. Yeah, the nice thing about the words science of reading is that it trips for all of us a bunch of stuff we want to say. Like, <laughs> like a, okay, this is what the science of reading is not. And this, I mean, it really pushes me to want to do a lot of clarification. And so one of the things that it makes me want to say is the science of reading is being touted as being indicative of like how much you teach in terms of phonics or phonemic awareness. And there's this sort of notion that every single student needs the same amount and it's a lot. And actually what we know is that there's really a lot of variation in how much phonemic awareness students need in order to access because that's what it does. It allows them to access the various other components of reading. And for some students, they acquire phonemic awareness and put it to work in terms of phonics and word reading really quickly, like a couple of hours distributed over, of course, many lessons. 
Now, some students need more, but to think that the science of reading means that all students need the same amount every day is really, to me, like a scary idea. And I think we're close in some places to prescribing what these components should look like for all learners. And the science of reading is clear on this. Customization is important as we think about learners and their needs. So I just kind of want to push in on that, especially Jeannie, I taught in general ed classrooms. You taught in general ed classrooms. I mean, if there's one place where one size doesn't fit all, it's the general ed classroom as well as the special ed classroom. I also taught in the special education. But I think we have this idea that we can prescribe this. And so I had to like really lean in on that. And I think it's not that different for older learners. So what we know is we have this idea that once students get into like fourth or fifth grade, that they already have acquired, for example, all that they need to know about the system of our language. Some people call it phonics, but it's really a system that helps us access words, difficult words. And that is often not the case. Many students in fourth grade or above have a lot of difficulty reading words, particularly multisyllable words. And of course, the IES document, the practice guide, for students in fourth through ninth grade says very specifically that multisyllable word instruction is associated with improved outcomes for the vast majority of students. There might be a few, but many students in fourth grade above are above still need that. And it also talks about the fact that fluency becomes an issue. So with fluency, we often focus on words correct per minute, right? Like how many there are. But maybe we also need to think a lot more on how accurate they are. So if a student is reading in fifth grade, 100 words correct per minute, and you might say, well, that's close to what they need, but not right there. But 97 or 98 or 99 of those 100 words are correct. That to me is a very different kind of profile, requiring a very different kind of set of practices than a student who is reading 100 words correct per minute. But it took 120 words to get there. That means they're making like 20% errors. So I think we really need to enunciate even more how these various practices need to be adjusted and refined for learner types. And that these learner types continue up past third grade, let's say. But again, I want to say that research is pretty clear, like 70% of weak readers in fourth grade or above need word study. It's not like 5%. Yeah. And then I want to pull on what science of reading is and what it is not. The what it is not is almost as important, right? So it's not static. It's not finished. It's not just one component. And I think what I was trying to think about is when you mentioned, Sharon, the IES practice guides, looking at the practice guide for K to three versus four to nine, right? There's different areas highlighted in emphasis, but I think it is important that we understand that all of those components are there and related. And the piece, Jeannie, that you mentioned that as a speech language pathologist, the piece that we all have to remember, even in pre-K, of course, in K, 
is the language part and that it is not just phonics, but that oral language we know is the foundation for later written language. So I think a lot of key points there and one size does not fit all, right? That we have to differentiate. When I was teaching first grade, we had no public kindergarten. So I had some kids coming in reading on the third grade level who had been at like a private school. Some kids, this was their first actual school experience. So to your point, Sharon, when you're in a general ed classroom, even in the special ed, but as the general ed teacher, you are dealing with profiles that span a large spectrum and you can't assume they all need the same amount. Even as you're thinking about, right, their profiles, even at a high level, if we were using the word recognition, the language comp type of framework. So those are really important ideas that you've both highlighted. And Jeannie, do you want to follow up on something there that Sharon said? Yeah, I was just going to say, if you have a child in first, second, third grade who is below grade level in their reading, but has a very high vocabulary or a high language comprehension or even on grade level in terms of those areas. So that continues to be worked on and they continue to have that. The child who in second grade knows orally what circumstance means and can comprehend that in an oral fashion, but can't read that yet because they're still working on their decoding. I am far less worried about because when they get to sixth grade and they can, now they've got this good instruction and reading that print and they can read the word circumstance, they now know what it means and they can keep moving on. And it's the students that either, you know, because of of a, a, a disability where they have several areas of weakness, which certainly can happen, or those students who had this reading difficulty and had such a focus on I working on the reading difficulty without also keeping this oral language and this language comprehension on grade level or above, we still have to work on that. It's those students that when they get to seventh grade, okay, now I can teach them how to read circumstance. And now I've got another issue. They don't know what circumstance means. So now we've got, we always see that multi-component interventions for sure work better for students in those older grades. But those students are going to need more intensive and longer interventions than a student for whom we paid attention to all those different areas when they were younger, even if they were struggling to read print. Yeah. And Jeannie, I want to do a shout out here to Christy Austin because it relates to your point about students who have to both learn how to read the word circumstance and then learn the meaning of it. In her study, which I found this so interesting, is that if you know the meaning of the word and you don't know how to read it, you can decode it with more facility because when you start to get a word like circum, circumstance, you have a knowledge in your head to link it to, so it becomes a word. But otherwise, if I don't have wordness around circumstance in my head, then as I start to decode it, it still sounds like gibberish. Well, and because multisyllabic words always have a stress as well that's not in print. You only know where the stress of the syllable comes largely from your oral language. And so 
when you do multisyllabic words, you kind of come up with the word and then you have to make it into a real word. Well, the only way you can make it into a real word is your oral language knows what that word is. Yeah. Absolutely. And that idea of teaching the code or the structure and always attaching meaning and making sure that we are keeping the language connected as well. And I want to ask Sharon about, you mentioned earlier in terms of the general ed classroom, and there's been a lot of research around intervention. Can you talk a little bit about tier one instruction and how your work in that area, whether recent work or in the past, and kind of your thoughts around that importance of tier one instruction? That's a little bit what we were talking about before with our work, some of which has been with social studies teachers, embedding And as we started to talk about multisyllabic words, I started to think about this as well. Most students in middle school, certainly in fourth and fifth grade, need some additional assistance, even if they're on grade level, in how to work with multisyllabic words. They see those a lot more in text as you get into those grade levels. And it's not the same process that they used when they were younger to identify those words. And so even helping as you're teaching the vocabulary words, some of those vocabulary words are going to be multisyllabic. How do we determine what this word even says? And then, yes, what does it mean? But yeah, some of those processes that we were talking about earlier are exactly what can be embedded into content. And it's still part of the content. No one is suggesting that embedding literacy in a discipline means giving reading intervention back to your point about I'm not the reading teacher. Instead, it's about that particular content and discipline. What do students need to know? Because every discipline has text, has language around it, has language comprehension around it. And how do we help students understand that within your particular content area? We use some of these same reading instruction or literacy instruction techniques, but you're doing it with your content. And now Sharon can add in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks. Jeannie and Liz, one of the things that we have to be sure we say, because I know both of you will agree with this, is that we don't want to give the impression that all of the elements and components of reading need to be taught by the teacher. And we need to have this sort of really nice combination of deliberate practice. And so, especially what I have noticed with the science of reading is that I worry that people think the science of reading means that teachers do the work and kids are there and rather passively absorbing. And really learning to read is as much about deliberate practice where the teacher is just guiding, supporting, and enhancing opportunities to read print. And this is certainly true as students get older. As we know, there is really something to the idea that as you get exposed to this text over and you get a chance to read a lot of words, reading words becomes more facile. So we can't tell people how to become facile as readers. We have to be sure we provide lots of opportunities for that facility to develop. Yeah, and that really gets back to the point we were talking about with even in the content areas with older grades that having a lot of that reading as homework, sometimes teachers feel the need to do that because of time constraints, right? There's so much to cover. And if they could read this before they come to class, then we can work on it more in class. But doing some of that reading with support 
will help many of the students better, like Sharon said, become facile in reading in that area. Because if we're just taking it home, if they aren't already facile in that, they're probably either not going to read it or not read it well or not understand what to change the next time that they read it. And then they got that much less practice reading in the discipline. And that's probably the most time consuming component. But if you have text that is helping you teach the content, then providing that supported reading while teaching the objectives you have for the day can be a way to embed that. Absolutely. That purposeful practice, dedicated practice and scaffolding that the gradual release of I do, we do, you do and making sure that we have lots of the practice together. I think that's really important. So I really appreciate all these insights that you've been sharing today. And so I like to wrap up each episode either by asking if you have any advice for teachers listening in or what you're seeing that makes you most excited about the future. Yeah, I think it's a very exciting time for literacy in particular, but education as well right now. I am continually hopeful about the types of discussions we are having around student needs at different levels, classroom intervention, students who have disabilities, students who have reading difficulties, students who are on grade level. I think more so than any other decade that I've been in education, Teachers realize the power, and especially special education teachers, realize the power of having high expectations, even for students who have reading difficulties or reading disabilities, that this isn't about slowing things down. They're never going to be able to reach a certain level. I don't think that is, I don't see that in classrooms like I did when I was first teaching. And so I'm very excited and hopeful about the expectations and the students that expectations with good instruction, expectations without <laughs> a anxiety producing for students, but but that students are being successful and know they can be successful, which I just find empowering for myself as well. And we see that in particularly the early elementary grades, what is a normative across the nation benchmark have risen in those early grades since I started teaching. I remember end of first grade, get your students to 40 words correct per minute. Well, most students can do that now. If you do a normative across the nation, it's more around 60 words per minute. That's huge. This instruction is really helping kids. And I'm very hopeful for the conversations we're having and the conversations that are about, okay, yeah, but this isn't working in reading comprehension or this isn't working in fluency because that is where we need to learn more. And those discussions mean we're ready to learn more and to try. So that's what I'm excited about. How about you, Sharon? Oh boy, it's so nice to be thinking about what I'm excited about because I feel like I spend most of my day thinking about problems and challenges, especially workforce challenges, because this really has been a difficult few years, and I think we have a, at least a few more years, where it appears as though the entire education system is burdened in ways I don't remember it being. So I'm not sure I can articulate all of those burdens, but it just feels sort of heavier and harder to get this sort of what are you excited about. So I think probably the thing I am most excited about right now is if I can help figure out ways 
to get greater alignment in instructional practices across instructional settings. So what I mean by a setting is for students who are the most challenged, they often have multiple teachers providing them reading instruction. And so they may have someone that we think of as a special ed teacher or a reading intervention teacher. And what I have observed is they are often using approaches that are not well aligned with what's going on in the classroom. And so the students are learning, for example, phonics rules about vowel teams in their intervention group. And then in their classroom, they're learning vowel digraphs or they're learning prefixes. So the opportunities to practice and integrate what you're learning are reduced. And I think we can do better than that. And I think not just in terms of word reading, in terms of comprehension. So why would we teach different comprehension practices to the neediest readers in their core classroom Mm -hmm. that are different from the ones we teach in intervention? So we give them this sort of extra burden of having to do double the work. So I'm really working on thinking about what happens when these practices are integrated and what kinds of benefits you get for students who are weaker readers. Yes, it's so true. We Even if the concepts are the same, they might have different labels. But as often as you mentioned, they're even teaching different concepts or different strategies. So it's adding to that cognitive load of the already heavy burden of learning to read. So I love that. And again, the other question, just if there was other any other research that you wanted to share or that you're most excited about that we didn't talk about, I wanted to give you an opportunity to do that as well. I would only say that back back to an earlier question related to is it too late? I think we have the research from fourth grade and up to show no, there there are lots of great practices. One piece that I was just going to highlight, Rachel Donegan and I did and kind of an updated synthesis review of the research for upper elementary students. So those fourth and fifth graders who may have either continued with a reading difficulty or who may have just started to exhibit more of a late emerging reading difficulty in those grade levels. And both in foundational reading skills and in reading comprehension, the research showed that both of those areas with good intervention students were making progress in. So it's not too late. And it's not just one area of reading that we can affect with good instruction and with good interventions. Excellent. That's actually something that makes me most excited that we can say a firm no to that question. It's (laughs) not too late. So that's exciting. Sharon, any last thoughts from you around your current research? I know you talked about you're looking at that integration across settings Anything else you wanted to highlight for us today? Well, one of the things I am not doing a study of, but I have been thinking a lot about over the last couple of years, is returning to some of the early work that I did around inclusion and co-teaching. And the reason I say that is because I am very interested in the role of special education teachers and thinking about how they can have a role in which they have great impact. And I am aware that there are a variety of ways in which teachers who are identified as special education teachers serve students with disabilities who are in the general ed classroom. 
And I just feel like we have underspecified that role, underconsidered ways to make it more impactful. And so I've got that on my mind. Absolutely. I think that word impact, right? How can we think about scaling the impact of these teachers, whether the classroom teachers, special education, speech language pathologists, right, coming together? across those settings and having that impact on their students. So I just want to thank you again, both Sharon and Jeannie. I'm so honored to have you have shared your expertise with us. Again, I mentioned we could have had seven episodes or eight episodes with all of the research that you guys have done and are doing. Thank you for clarifying some of the things that science of reading is and is not and with the special focus today on adolescence, but also the connection to what happens in the early grades. So again, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Good to see you all. And thanks to our listeners. I'd love to hear from you. What are the challenges and opportunities you're seeing in our schools? And help us welcome more people to this literacy conversation by leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribing so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes. And you can join the conversation on Twitter or X by following me at Liz C. Brooke. Love this episode of the All for Literacy podcast? Subscribe, leave a review, and join the literacy conversation.